This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sadaka singing Laughter in the Rain. It's not often that I get to talk with somebody that knows radio super well. It's an even rarer occasion that I get to talk with someone that knows baseball uh, even even better than that. And it is a really once-a-year opportunity to be able to chat with someone that knows not only the worlds of radio and baseball, but... Some the inside line on some of the greatest television programs of all time. Shows like MASH, The Simpsons, when The Simpsons was The Simpsons, Cheers, Frasier, just to name a few. Ken Levine is one such person. He is an Emmy Award winning screenwriter, director, producer, author, and the host of a terrific podcast, which you should check out, called Hollywood and Levine. Ken, it's great to talk with you again. It's been too long. Uh, it's great to talk to you. And uh, it was fun hearing that Neil Sadaka song on WABC, but I missed the chime at the end. <laughs> I'll let Cousin Brucey know when I see him next week that you're putting in a special request for bringing back uh, Chime Time. Uh, Yeah, you know, as a radio nerd, because as you mentioned before, uh, I was a top 40 disc jockey. So it is an honor to have my voice on WABC. Wow. Well, the honor is all mine. You know what a fan I am of of your work, and I've become an even bigger fan of uh, of your podcast. Ken, give us the latest. Obviously, you you've been writing in the TV business for several decades now. You've had the kind of success that most uh, TV writers can only dream of. A lot of people are thinking about writers for the first time in a while because a lot of their favorite shows aren't in the process of being produced or being written. Not only do you have this SAG after strike, but you have the the writer's strike. So you're one of these fellows that's on strike right now. Break it down for us in layman's terms. Uh, what's going on with this writer's strike? Why are the writers on strike? And are you optimistic that they're going to come to some sort of a resolution soon? I don't know whether it will be soon, but there will be some resolution. Yeah, I've been through the wars before. This is my fifth strike. 
And it's really the most crucial one because as opposed to the other strikes where you're basically negotiating fees and they give you a number and you have a number and you try to meet in the middle here, the entire industry has changed. There's been a seismic shift in how television, how entertainment is delivered to the audience. Uh, the whole idea of streaming now uh, it used to be you had three networks and depending upon the ratings, the networks made the most amount of money on advertising and everything was based on that. Well, with the subscription model, like for Netflix or Hulu, uh, it's very different. So uh, the industry has changed quite a bit. And as a result, what the producers are basically offering is the old model, but the old model doesn't exist any longer. Mm. So it's really an existential issue. And it's one of the reasons why, even though the strike has gone on past 100 days, why writers are still so firm and we're still out there marching, getting in our 10,000 steps. There's, <laughs> uh, there's complete solidarity because we know if we don't get a good deal, it's essentially the end of the writers' union, and it's very hard for just uh, rank-and-file writers to just make a decent living anymore. And so you're actually out there on the picket line regularly? Yep, I'm out there. You can see me holding my little sign. And do you think that AI is a big uh, is a big bone of contention here as well? I know that's an issue with the actors. They don't want their image created and used in perpetuity without being paid for it, which is certainly understandable. Is that a play with the writers as well? Oh, absolutely, because instead of having a writing staff of seven or eight writers, what's to stop one writer, a showrunner, from saying to AI, we need a story about this and we need a plot about this. And AI spits out this script mm. that the showrunner just makes adjustments to. And, you know, that's that's the show. So instead of eight writers working, there's one writer working. And the uh, other problem is in uh, even if you had that framework, in another five or six years after the showrunners get burned out and tired, well, there's been no pipeline. <laughs> you know, there's been no one to mentor. Sure. So who's going to be running the shows? So, yeah, AI is is a huge problem. Yeah, I guess there's, uh, the, the robots use a lot less coffee than the standard writer's room, right? Maybe it's a way to save money uh, yeah, on coffee. Yeah, they need a lot more red vines, though. <laughs> Talking with Ken Levine, Emmy Award-winning screenwriter. You could check out his podcast, Hollywood and Levine. Ken, I referenced your history in baseball. You've been a baseball announcer over the years, including one of the cities we're being heard in Baltimore, I believe. And you wrote one of my favorite episodes of The Simpsons, and it deals a bit with uh, the world of baseball, and it's the episode where Homer basically becomes a, a baseball mascot, and that episode has actually been getting a lot of attention over the course of the last three weeks because of a celebrity voice that is in that episode when Homer gets called up to Capital City. The audience sees and hears this inimitable voice. There's a swinging town I know called 
capital city. The penny loafer. People stop and scream hello in capital city. Kids, look. Street crime. It's the kind of place that makes a bum feel like a king. Wow, bad service. And it makes a king feel like some nutty cuckoo super Tony Bennett uh, apparently showing that San Francisco was not the only city that he cared to sing about with that great song about Capital City. Obviously, we lost Tony Bennett recently at uh, at 100, and uh, I'm curious just... What? How that came to be, that Tony Bennett cameo in Dancing Homer? And did you get to write the song itself? How did you get that? How did you get uh, Tony Bennett we to agree parti- to it? We participated in, in writing it. Um, you know, there was all, always these songs, you know, New York, New York and Chicago and that kind of thing. And so we wanted to make a big deal about Homer going to the major leagues, going to Capital City. And we thought, well, let's see if we can do one of those type of songs. Actually, of all the celebrities that have guested on The Simpsons, Tony Bennett and that episode was the very first. Really? Wow. I did not realize that. And by the way, I said he was 100. He was actually 96. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX is The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Did you get to, um, I, I'm not sure how it works in terms of writing for a show where it's not live action, but it's animated. Did you get to interact with Tony Bennett at all during the production of no, the show? No, I was not there when he recorded. I was there when they recorded the episode because I also got to do a voice on the episode. I'm the voice of the Springfield Isotopes. You know, it's funny. So, uh, that was really cool to actually hear my voice coming out of a cartoon character's mouth. When I watched the DVD of that episode a couple of years ago, I can watch it with your commentary in the episode. And it was interesting right. hearing the kind of the behind the scenes of how that episode came to be. All the things that are unique about that episode. And I would never have known that that was your voice uh, doing the uh, Capital City Isotopes. That was pretty cool. You, you know, on your blog, you wrote a few years ago about Frank. Sinatra, and obviously your musical tastes are uh, to be taken seriously because you were a top 40 DJ at a time when that really meant something. Are you not a Sinatra fan? That was my that was my takeaway in reading your oh, no, comment. I'm, I'm a huge Sinatra fan during the Capitol years. Gotcha. Okay. During the Capitol era, it's fantastic. And, uh, and I have Sinatra playlists uh, I have problems with the later Sinatra. I have problems with the kids are twisting and uh, Mrs. Robinson, Jilly loves you more than you will know. 
cuckoo, cuckoo, Mrs. Robinson, that, you know, that kind of stuff. How's your bird, Mrs. Robinson? But the capital years, only the lonely and night and day and all of those great songs. Ain't nobody better. Gotcha. Okay, good to know. I'm glad I clarified that. You had a play not long ago that uh, people certainly seem to enjoy called America's Sexiest Couple. If people want to know the level of enjoyment that the crowd experienced, here's a smattering of laughter that took place. That's about 40 seconds straight of laughter, not a laugh track at all, a live recording. And the last episode of your podcast I thought was so interesting because you delved into the world of laughter and all its benefits. I think this is something that most people don't necessarily think about. What's so great about laughter? Well, laughter, it, there actually is physical benefits to to laughing uh it it actually uh slows your heart rate um you know various things that help you sleep and uh prolong your life and reduce tension uh you know one of the things that i always said when i'm working in television that sometimes you're working on shows that are very stressful uh, you might have cast members that are driving you nuts or network notes or whatever, uh, the pressure of turning out a television show every week. But I thought to myself, you know what? Every day I laugh. Every day I'm around very funny people. And no matter how stressful, how much pressure there is, I still get a chance to laugh every day. And what a blessing that is and think about whatever your job is do you get a chance to laugh every mm. day i hope you do how do you figure out and you've been i guess successfully figuring this out for over four decades how do you figure out the process of making people laugh uh i would say it's it's just kind of experience trial and error and uh sort of seeing what worked before is also a lot of guesswork involved. I mean, who is better than Neil Simon at coming up with just amazingly funny plays where the plays are consistently wall to wall funny, where you are laughing for 90 minutes, two hours. And yet Neil Simon would rewrite constantly you know, for all of the jokes that worked, there were probably another 30 or 40 percent of jokes that didn't work. But at the time, he thought they would. At the time, they were in the script and he got up in front of an audience and was like, "Ooh, OK, <laughs> <laughs> OK, that didn't work. So, like I said, there's a, a certain amount of trial and error and just um, I don't know. Uh, judgment after doing it. If you're in a writer's room, it's, it's kind of funny. 
you're in a writer's room and somebody will pitch a joke and everyone in the room will nod and go, okay, that's good. That's funny. Do that. <laughs> and it works for an audience. It, it, it gets a laugh, but we don't laugh at every single thing. Talk to folks about the difference between how to figure out laughter when you're writing for a character, whether it's in a play, whether it's in a film, whether it's in a television program, versus when you're performing material as you would as a stand-up comic. Is there a different mentality in terms of preparing material as a stand-up versus a screenwriter, for instance? Well, I would say that if you are writing for a stand-up or if you are a stand-up, you need to adopt a certain persona. You can't just get up there and do dating nightmare jokes. Uh, You have to have a a certain persona. So if you are writing for Patton Oswalt, it's going to be very different than if you're writing for John Mulaney, and that's going to be very different if you are writing for Dave Chappelle. When you are writing television, most of the stuff that I write, the laughs come out of character, come out of attitude. So I'm not writing jokes per se. I'm putting characters in a situation generally out of their comfort zone and having them react in ways they might not normally react and just sort of see where the fun is in that. And a lot of times if you read a script from say Cheers or Frasier on the page, it might not look that funny. And on the air, when Niles goes, I don't think so. (laughs) It's a huge laugh because of the circumstances But if you just read it on the page, it doesn't sound like a joke. You know, it's interesting that you mention Frasier. One of the things that we've seen a great deal in recent years is attempts at remakes and revivals. And sometimes it seems like they work for a time, as was the case with Roseanne. Sometimes, actually, I would say this is maybe the norm, they don't tend to work. I'm thinking of shows like Murphy Brown and Will and Grace, maybe even Mad About You, which were wildly popular at the time they were on. But for whatever reason, when they were brought back, they couldn't recapture that lightning in a bottle that made themselves such a hit. We've uh, talked to Kelsey Grammer on this show a couple of times. He has said that he's bringing back Frasier. Apparently, it is very close to being done. And um, I'm curious, do you think this is going to work? Are you excited to see the new Frasier as a viewer? Are you involved at all in the writing of the new Frasier? And just as an analyst of this kind of thing, is this a revival that can work? Well, I wish them well. Uh, I'm not involved in it at all. Um, when my partner, David Isaacs and I wrote one of the last episodes of Frasier, the final season, and, um, we were standing on the stage and it was playing very well. And I turned to my partner and I said, is this the last time we're going to have an opportunity to write a sophisticated half hour multi-camera show? And so far, yes. And I think there is a place for a show like Frasier. And so I'm wishing them the best, although they have just a a huge mountain to climb 
because they're going to be compared to one of the greatest shows of all time. And you're not going to have the characters like David Hyde Pierce and unfortunately the late John Mahoney, mm. but uh, you're not going to have Jane Leaves and Barry Gilpin. And there's going to be new people. And so hopefully the new people are as good in different ways. Um, you know, we'll see. I was so excited when I heard that there was going to be uh, a new version of Justified because I <laughs> loved the original Justified. And now he's in Detroit, Raylan Givens, and, you know, and it's like, uh, this isn't good at all. Sometimes <laughs> you they know? say you can't go, you can't go home again. Hey, uh, for Cheers, which you were certainly intimately involved, they, they very much seem like a show of the 1980s. Frasier very much seems like a show of the 1990s. Do you think, which of those shows do you think has aged better for audiences in twenty in the 2020s? Have they both aged well? Has one aged better than the other? I think they both have aged well. I think Frasier has aged better. There's something about Frasier, the look of the show, uh, the wardrobe, the storyline, everything about Frasier, for some reason, doesn't feel dated. Mm. So if I had to pick, but look, uh, people are discovering and rediscovering Cheers all the time. Um, I think it holds up extremely well. Uh, I watched, I'm not going to say what it was, but uh, a show that I worked on my very first staff job in the 70s was a show that at the time I thought, this is just really, really funny. And episodes of it have been posted recently on YouTube. And I went back to watch and I thought, oh, this is going to be a fun, nostalgic uh, experience. And I was like, ooh, <laughs> ooh this is not very good. <laughs> uh, Ken Levine, I'm going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate you being willing to stay up late with us. I could talk with you all day. I hope we could chat again soon. Anytime. Thanks very much. Thank you. People should check out the Hollywood and Levine podcast. And uh, you could hear Ken do some great interviews, tell some great stories, and uh, really offer the kind of insight that if you are interested in entertainment or pop culture and more, I think you're going to get a big kick out of Hollywood and Levine. Comments, questions, thoughts, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.